Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly. Sponsored by Insperity. HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Happy Friday, St. Louis. It's June the 9th, 2023. The weather is beautiful. The weekend is here. The Cardinals are back in town, and so is John Hancock. How are you, pal? I'm doing well. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, quite an eventful 24 hours we've had in this country. Yeah, we're going to get to talk about a lot of it. I got to tell you, hey, I did something St. Louis-y last night. Doesn't get yeah. much more St. Louis-y right. than this. I went to Charlie Gito's for dinner. Is that Hadn't right? been in 10 years. Yeah. When was the last time you were at Charlie Gito's? It's been a while. Yeah. Sat outside. Yeah. Had a jacket on in St. Louis in June. Nice. Had to wear a jacket. That's how lovely the weather was is. Was it a sport jacket? No, or it was just like a little, uh, you know, little linen pullover little, to keep myself uh, from uh, getting the little goosebumps from the the cold air. Wow! Could you believe how wonderful this weather is? The weather's nice. It's very nice right now. Uh, we don't have much of the. Uh, Wildfire dust sprinkling over us here, and uh, well, it's been a little hazy. What did you, you, you eat last night? So I had the chicken parmesan, and we oh. had a, a tortellini that that was shared with the table. Yeah, one of the other guys got a lemon something or another uh, veal, mm. um, and somebody got some scallops. You know, the Greeks put a lot of lemon in their food. The, the Greeks do put a lot of lemon in their food. Uh, Dad made my father-in-law uh, came over the other night, and he whipped up a little dish and. Uh, the rice with the chicken in there, uh-huh. rice and peas and the, and the chicken, uh, and full of lemon, yeah. which was it's an interesting little flavor. I love lemon, and the, the Greeks do some lemon potatoes too. Some yeah, potatoes right. Potatoes that are yeah. in lemon and oil and butter, yeah. and you know, I'm sure it's the oil and butter is the part I like the best. Yes, you. Well, they've got the olive oil in there. Yeah, I also this week uh, went and did something historic. Went and saw the final oh. uh, performance of the Grateful Dead yeah. in St. Louis. So they say. They were here at Riverport Amphitheater. Well, they're getting old, John. I mean, you have some of the originals that are still there. Bob Weir uh, and Mickey Hart. Um, uh, Bill Kreutzman, the drummer, it is not on this tour. John Mayer is playing with them. Uh, and it was so much fun to be there. First of all, it was an absolutely splendid evening. Uh, the Grateful Dead, who have a 50-year history with St. Louis, always come through St. Louis. When many other concerts have chosen to to avoid us, uh, they continue to come. And, uh, and they, they played for how long? About three hours. How many songs in three hours? Oh, probably 15, 16 songs. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, and they have a catalog where they can play four or five days without repeating any songs. Right. So they're up in Wrigley Field for the next two nights. And any of the songs that were played here in St. Louis, they won't play. They played a couple of St. Louis songs, Johnny Be Good, because uh, oh. uh, and and Bob Weir, who's uh, the lead singer of the Grateful Dead, has said that uh, you know that's that's where rock and roll started. John, Johnny Be Good. I've heard that from the Beatles mm-hmm. and the Rolling Stones as well. So that was a lot of fun. And you know, I hadn't been out to Riverport in a long time. They've uh, They've figured out how to get all those people in and out of there in uh, a, a reasonable period of time. So uh, I remember going when I was a kid. Sometimes you'd have to sit in line for an hour and a half to get in to go watch going a concert. Going as a kid. Yeah. I, it feels to me, of course, I'm older than you are, but it feels to me like Riverport's, you know, fairly a new venue. Yeah, I think it came in the 1990s. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's had six names since it was originally called Riverport. Uh-huh. It's something else now. I think it's Hollywood and... At one time, it was Verizon and something else, and but I think everybody always refers to it as uh, Riverport. And I also had a friend in from out of town. We'll talk a little bit about that later. It's always interesting to see St. Louis through the eyes of visitors. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a visitor in town who had some very positive and some very, uh, I don't know if it was critical or negative, but some observations of St. Louis that uh, I bet maybe uh, many of our listeners have seen and, and thought themselves. Uh, John, yesterday that was overwhelming news that we got uh, as it relates to Donald Trump. Uh, two thoughts. Number one, it probably wasn't surprising, and uh, it was depressing at the same time and uh, surprising in the sense that, uh, you know, this investigation's been going on for a while. Uh, depressing in the sense that, you know, we are now a country that who has indicted a former president of the United States. We're going to talk a little bit about, not a little bit, a lot about the uh, Trump indictment, uh, our thoughts, what it means politically, some of the specifics of what we're what we know to be in the indictment, uh, what are the political implications, and then what are some of the other problems that Donald Trump faces as we head towards this slide to November of 2022, 2024. Heck, we may even have time to take some calls from our listeners. Yeah, at the top of the hour, 9 o'clock, we'd be delighted to hear from you as far as what your reaction is to this Trump indictment. It is historic. I think we can all agree uh, on that. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to visit with Jeff McCause and the Ukrainians have started a new counteroffensive in their war with Russia. We're going to get an update from Colonel McCause on about that. Dan Reardon's going to join us next hour. Uh, he's got a really unique and I think interesting take on this PGA Live Golf situation that uh, was announced earlier this week. All that and more coming your way right here on The Voice of St. Louis. KMOX, the 2023 Large Market Radio Station of the Year, recognized by the Missouri Broadcasters Association. KMOX, we were built for this. It is Friday morning. That means Hancock and Kelly are holding forth here at KMOX. We'll take you till 10 o'clock. We'll later be joined uh, by Amy Marksforce and Chris Ranji from the show. We'll talk to them for a little while. We'll step aside. We'll come back a little later, join Dave Glover. And then, of course, on Sunday mornings, you can see Hancock and Kelly, the television show, at 830 on Fox 2 in St. Louis, John. And I have a feeling we'll be spending most of our time both today and on television, talking about the former president of the United States. News broke yesterday that the former president announced to the world on his own social media platform uh, that he has been indicted by the federal government and special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, He will be arraigned in Miami at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. Uh, This case now uh, looks like it's going to be centered in uh, Miami, Florida, John. That's interesting. One of the things we'll get into. Uh, let's talk about some of the specifics of what we know to be in the indictment. Yeah, so it's uh, interesting. There are seven counts. It's been reported. Uh, most of them revolving around obstruction of justice by the president withholding the return of those documents uh, to the National Archives. There is one count apparently uh, in involving the Espionage Act, and that was uh, that was for retention of the documents. What's interesting in this, and, you know, the reason we have these laws in place uh, with classified documents is, obviously, we don't want classified information being shared with our enemies uh, or potential enemies uh, to this country. And there's nothing in the indictment that deals with the dissemination of this information to our enemies. So at least on that level, um, you know, you hope – but but – Clearly, I think the facts of the case, Donald Trump was asked to return the classified documents that he had. He returned some. 
they came back and said, do you have any others? And he returned some additional ones, 38 boxes, I think. And his lawyers represented to the National Archives that they had sent back all of the classified material in Donald Trump's possession. They didn't believe that at the National Archives, and eventually the Justice Department issued a subpoena, and and then the Justice Department issued a search warrant where they found over 100 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. There's been a lot of folks out there equating the Donald Trump retention of classified records to the fact uh, that both Joe Biden and Mike Pence had classified materials in their possession after they left office. The difference is... In both of those instances, uh, Biden and Pence turned over the documents to the feds uh, and cooperated with them. And I think had Donald Trump done that from the get-go, in fact, I'm certain of it, he would never have been charged with this offense. And, you know, it's not good for the country to have a former no. president under indictment. And it's important that we remember this played out over a year and a half so let's let's remember when the Biden documents were discovered and the Pence documents were discovered, they immediately notified um, notified the federal government. The federal government came. They did an investigation. It went on. Uh, they tried to see if there were more documents. Donald Trump knowingly had documents and was conspiring to keep from turning those documents over. Had he turned those documents over, I'm not sure we would be in this position oh, today. Oh, we would. We would. Because – and he knew full well there's leaked recordings that have been verified now by CNN and other places that the president knew full well that he had classified information that he could have classified had he been president. Since declassified. He was declassified. Mm-hmm. Since he's no longer president, he was unable to do that. So he knowingly, apparently on tape, admits that he was violating the law. Yeah, and it's troubling, and, you know, I hate to see it. The The Republican uh, response to this has been pretty unanimous in that they're contesting that uh, the Justice Department has been weaponized, that uh, Joe Biden is going after uh, and potentially imprisoning a political rival, equating the United States justice system to a third-world banana republic. And— you know, that's a. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to our sound of our little voices right now that uh, believe that in their core. Here's the here's the political problem with that narrative. If if you're Joe Biden, you're sitting there with your approval rating, depending on which poll you look at, you're in the high 30s or low 40s. You are a very unpopular president in a struggling economy where inflation has exacted a tax on every American because we it costs more for us to live now and we're not making more than we were, most of us. And so you've got an unpopular president. The one person, the one person in the country that Joe Biden potentially could defeat is Donald Trump. So it would not be in Joe Biden's interest to take Donald Trump off the playing field as a potential political opponent uh, because that's the guy he wants to run against. But whose interest it could particularly be in are the opponents that are wanting to run against Donald Trump, including Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, Tim Scott, uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, the, the list goes on and on, John. Interesting, nearly to a T, with the exception of Chris Christie, every one of them siding with the, pres- the former president, saying that this is a weaponization of right. uh, the Department of Justice, essentially all in on Donald Trump. 
How do you think that impacts the political play for the Republicans? We've seen when the former president was indicted before in New York City on civil charges Mm. um, that we saw his approval ratings go up and his support inside the Republican Party go up. Yep. Republicans defended him at that time. Now, they're all going out there trying to make this contrast that they would be a better candidate for president of the United States, yet they're carrying Donald Trump's water. Is the same thing going to happen? Will the base of the Republican Party continue to embrace Donald Trump? And is the calculation being made by some of these Republicans a false narrative and ultimately harming themselves? Well, uh, I do think his numbers are going to go up among the Republican electorate. And, you know, you mentioned Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, also a, a candidate at 1% in the polls. It's uh, come out and said that the, the indictment was correct. Other than that, you're right. They've spoken with one voice, all of these other opponents. The, the problem they have, if you're whether you're Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or any of these people, is that the Republican electorate, the majority of the Republican electorate is fully behind Donald Trump. Uh, in this case, in the New York case, which, by the way, the New York case was political, in my opinion, uh, in a way that this one is not. I've always thought the documents case was the most serious challenge that, that Donald Trump faced, legal challenge that Donald Trump faced. But the electorate, the Republican base, and if we open the phones, which we intend to do next hour, 436-7900, I think you will find that uh, that's where the voters are. And so these candidates that are opposing Trump can't oppose Trump as vociferously as they would perhaps like to because they're going to alienate Republican voters when they do it. And that is the conundrum in which they find themselves. And, of course, without drawing a distinction between themselves and Donald Trump, it makes the challenge of winning even more difficult. And, you know, that's that's kind of where where this thing is right now, the politics of it. Yeah, the landscape right now, the former president, to our knowledge, only dealing with documents on this indictment on Tuesday. Jack Smith also investing, investigating January 6th. No word as to whether or not that would be included, right. but that would be hard to imagine that that would be something they would bring forth in Florida federal court. That'd more likely be something that they could come forward in Washington, D.C. We wait to see if Jack Smith will be doing anything like that. Let's not forget the former president still faces potential indictments coming out of the state of Georgia related to election tampering. So uh, Donald Trump is going to be a common theme of our lives, regardless of him running for president of the United States for the next year. Well, there's no question about that. And here's where, by the way, that's what I think he likes the most. Yeah. And and here's where getting back to the politics of this. So, you know, I, this is what I do for a living is, you know, help people navigate Crisis. Public opinion and, uh, yeah, and crises. The argument I think that you're going to see emerge by these challengers to Donald Trump isn't that he's corrupt or a criminal or documents. Clearly, they're not going there. The argument that's going to emerge that might have some sway with Republican voters is that if you really want to beat Joe Biden, if the if you believe Joe Biden is so... Uh, horrific for the future of America and his economic policies have brought us into this horrible inflationary cycle that we have. Uh, If you believe that Joe Biden's corrupt, uh, as many Republicans do, and the the U.S. House is investigating, and if you believe that Joe Biden is a threat to the republic, then the last person you should nominate is Donald Trump, who demonstrably cannot win. 
And whether whether you think the indictment is political or trumped up, pardon the pun, uh, it's an indictment of a former president. And it's somebody that if they were going to run for president outside of his base vote, which is substantial, but it's not a majority of the country, he's probably going to lose to Joe Biden. And that is the case that Ron DeSantis and the others, I predict, are going to start making. How do you do that when, John, when John, how do you do that when Donald Trump's going to be consuming all the oxygen, making this an argument that this is a witch hunt, that the Department of Justice is acting rogue, he's going to be out setting the narrative. Uh, uh, Ron DeSantis and the others have already shown that they're going to do nothing but parrot what he has to say. How do you separate yourself uh, from Donald Trump when the issue is going to be this indictment of Donald Trump? Well, I think it's the electability issue. And I, I think that's where uh, if you're going to try and depose Donald Trump from the perch of the Republican field of presidential candidates, that's the argument that you're going to have to make. And that's the argument that's going to have to stick. New polling coming out today saying that 43 percent of GOP voters don't care if Trump's right. a felon or if he's indicted. They will still support him. Yep. Um, I bet there's many of you out there in the audience who maybe still have some favorable thoughts for uh, Donald Trump. Maybe you have some thoughts on what's happening with this indictment, if it's politically motivated or if karma has finally caught up with the former president. We'd love to hear from you in the next hour at 314-436-7900-1800-925-1120. Hancock and Kelly off to an exciting start here for Friday. Indeed we are. Next hour, we're going to talk about the, uh, the Ukraine situation with Colonel Jeff McCausland and catch up with him. Uh, crumbling infrastructure in the city of St. Louis has caught our attention as well. And Darren Reardon on the Live Golf PGA. All that coming your way on the Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Well, the big news of the world here on the Hancock and Kelly show is the announcement that former President Donald Trump has been indicted. He will show up in court on Tuesday in Miami to be arraigned. Uh, not surprising, yet surprising at the same time. Not surprising that this is a narrative that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, disappointing and and really sad in the sense that, John, this is the first time we've seen a former president of the United States indicted by the federal government. Yeah, and it's not good for the country, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, something very interesting occurred to me last night as this was all breaking. It was, I don't know, 50 years ago. Um, almost when um, Richard Nixon resigned the presidency, he was likely going to be indicted for obstruction crimes related to Watergate. Several members of his administration, thinking about H.R. Haldeman, John Dean, Gordon Liddy, a number of people went to jail over Watergate, and it was likely that Nixon was going to be indicted after he left the White House. And uh, Gerald Ford pardoned him. Uh, within just a short time of, of taking the office of president. And had he not done that, Donald Trump wouldn't be the first former president to be indicted. Now, I think Ford made the right decision, sparing the country from going through that. Uh, this is not good for America that Donald Trump's been indicted. But I don't think he's got anyone to blame other than himself. And uh, the intransigence he had retaining those documents after they were asked for. But my opinion on this is not the prevailing sentiment coming out of the Republicans in Washington, D.C. They say this is a political prosecution. 
that Joe Biden is trying to put one of his political enemies in jail and that it's a bastardization of the justice system. That's the narrative that Republicans are coming up in Washington. We'd like to hear what you think about this at 314-436-7900-1800-925-1120. Let's go to the phone line. And Dave. Dave, you're on KMOX. Hello. Hey there. Hello. Hey there. Am I on? You're on. Oh, okay. I didn't hear any usage. It was like a little sound. (laughs) Yeah. But um, but anyway, I'm wondering about the rest of them. Uh, Every one of them seem to have a bunch of um, documents. But here's the worst one to me mm-hmm. is Joe Biden. He has them all the way back to when he was a senator, in which case that's a felony. He must have snuck them out in his pants or his socks or whatever, like um, another one did. <clears throat> and um, that one had to, he was punished, but I think he just had to pay a fine or something. Yeah, oh, you're, you're talking about to... you're talking about Sandy Berger, who was the former National Security Advisor under uh, Bill Clinton, who had snuck a classified docu- yeah. document out of the archives, right. and he was he was punished, but he didn't go to prison. You're correct about that, right? And now, whereas uh, a senator has no right to do this, they can't, they don't have any right to take those things out of their skiff or whatever it is, mm-hmm. when at all. Biden did it when he was in, way back then when he was a senator. Plus, he did it as we find out as vice president. And where did that? Okay, for instance, uh, this is where I connection I put is like this: that balloon that Biden let fly all the way all over the United States, examining all of our military and um, particular nuclear sites. Well, that was a payback for all the millions of dollars that they gave him. For having his son live in their house, who where she paid over fifty thousand dollars a month rent, which over the years he did it, uh, you multiple millions of dollars there. And um, <clears throat> anyway, he—that's uh, the only place he could have gotten the money from. He wasn't employed anywhere except he was running around the world getting money right, from. Dave. Our, our enemies. Thank you for All your right. uh, call. Thank you for Dave weighing says in. That this is a, tied to the spy balloon. That's, uh, that's a, a point of view I hadn't heard before. Well, let's go to Barbara. Barbara, you're on Cable X. Yes. Um, I feel like the National Archives, and I heard up in Washington, D.C., that the National Archives people weren't there when um, they were supposed to leave out of the White House. And the things were thrown into boxes, just thrown in, and then taken to Mar-a-Lago. And then uh, they didn't even know what was down at Marlargo. I don't even think they knew what was down there. And it was all thrown together in a hectic way. And uh, it's always hectic when they leave the White House. Well, it's a very plausible argument you make there, uh, Barbara. But the problem with that is, is there's a recording that's come out today that says the former of the president of the United States knew exactly what he had, knew that it hadn't been declassified, and was holding on to it. Well, the thing about it is, is... He may have thought that he had everything back to the archives. I think those people from the archives should have been there when they, when President Trump was leaving the White House so that they could have helped him, or somebody should have been there to help him to leave the White well, House. Yeah, one of the there interesting, was nobody there. Yeah, one of the interesting aspects of this, uh, and thank you so much for that call, Barbara. One of the interesting aspects of this thing is that we don't really know 
the timing of when those documents left the White House. Uh, so we don't know for a fact that they all left on the final day uh, and were put on a plane and flown to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, at least I've not seen that reported. And, and the biggest problem here is that for a year and a half— they tried to get these back from the president, and he refused to turn them over. That's ultimately what's got him in this position. Yeah, and but and, and, and the point I was making is, you know, he could have been, while he was president, he could have had those documents. He was in, at Mar-a-Lago quite a bit while he was president. Uh, those documents could have been there, you know, at any point during the presidency. And so we don't know that it was uh, a careless, you know, throwing stuff in boxes at the We just don't know. The, the answer to that. Let's go to Sue. Sue, you're on KMOX. Sue? Thing has made, yes, I'm here. Good. This whole thing has made me a much bigger Trump supporter than I ever was. I was just mildly going along because I didn't want Biden. Yeah. And now I feel like they're dragging everything out of the woodwork because they know that that Biden's ratings are so low that he would not win the the election if if all this wasn't going on. So they couldn't win the election on on Biden's on his person. Now they've got everything trumped up against Trump, and people will say, "Well, what are we going to do? We can't elect him. He's a criminal." All and right. Thanks for the call. That then and that is the prevailing sentiment that's coming out of the, the GOP in Washington. No, also no interesting, she that. said that it's made her support of Donald Trump even stronger. And, and I think you're going to see that. I, yeah. I think you're going to see Trump rise in the primary polls. My point on this is uh, I like winning elections, okay? That's my, you know, I prefer <laughs> winning elections to losing them. And my concern is, and I think the Biden people believe that, the only person they clearly can beat uh, with for Joe Biden is Donald Trump, and I think they want Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. Uh, but I do think this is going to strengthen, and we're going to give we're going to give Don the last word on this. Don, welcome to Camel X. Hello, how are you guys doing? Great. Hey, sir. hey, my comment is just a, a little bit about Trump. If he would have when he, if he would have ran on his accomplishments and not kept his mouth shooting off during the election, things might be different. First of all, I really approve. Of what he do he was doing with the border. This is a right. freaking mess. I think he I, I think he made a real difference there. I agree with you. We we were almost energy independent with yep. the pipeline that got shut down, which was very stupid. Yeah. Because now we're in deep trouble with fuel and, and energy. A lot of his policies were really right there and they're for America, and I do believe he loves this country and he's fighting for this country all the time. And that's where I'm at personally. And I just don't understand all the Everything that he did, his accomplishments were rejected first day in the White House by Biden, which was crap, because a lot of his accomplishments need to continue and need to keep working. The economy was doing well. Uh, everything was going great. I don't understand, you know. Yeah, and, and Don, uh, uh, this is a sincere question. Um, do you think that, that Donald Trump uniquely did those things as president, or do you think that any Republican who had been president would have led the fight for deregulation and cut taxes and secured the border uh, and and built the pipeline? Because uh, I, I think that's pretty standard Republican dogma, right? He, he uniquely did it. He's got All the right. power, he's got the strength, he's got the connections, he's got everything it needs to get that stuff done. 
No, he uniquely had a push. All right. Well, other we... Republican presidents, other Republicans had that ability and didn't do it. Didn't have the connections. Didn't get it done. He was getting it done when he left office. So that that's my argument. Fair enough, Don. Thanks so much for joining us. We need to step aside for just a moment, Michael. When we come back, Colonel Jeff McCausland is going to join us. Ukraine has started the long-anticipated counteroffensive, and we'll get an update on what's happening in that conflict. That's next on X. Now, back to Hancock and Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Well, we go now to the celebrity guest line, which is brought See, to you Quiver by the River. Quiver River Electric Guest Line, where we're joined by Colonel Jeff McCausland. Uh, he's a CBS military analyst. He's kind enough to join us. Colonel, uh, welcome to the Hancock and Kelly Show. We all woke up earlier this week to find out that a dam, the Nova Kakova Dam in Ukraine, had been blown up. Uh, both sides pointing each other, the Ukraine saying this was done by Russia. Russia saying it's uh, self-sabotage being done by the Ukrainians. Uh, millions of people in the way of this water and uh, nuclear plants along the way. This is a true disaster, is it not? Yeah, without a question, the blowing of the Kakovka Dam is a natural disaster. But in terms of that argument over who perpetrated it, pretty seems pretty clear to me that it's most likely the Russians. I mean, let's start from the beginning. Who controlled the, the dam prior to the explosion? The Russians did. Engineers who have examined it from a distance and know the composition of the dam, they would have to have been blown from the inside. Could have been, could not have been uh, blown in this fashion by, you know, an errant missile or a bomb from the outside, et cetera. And then thirdly, of course, who benefits from this right at the moment? Well, the Ukrainians, we know, are at the moment conducting a counteroffensive against Russia. So to blow this dam and flood these areas actually is to the defender's advantage as opposed to the, to the attacker's advantage. And, you know, dams in this area were blown by the Soviets back in 1941 to slow the advance of the German army. And, oh, by the way, in 1944, as the Germans were retreating, they blew it a second time to slow the advance of Soviet forces. Yeah, and, and that's uh, that's clear. And we've been kind of waiting for the spring counteroffensive for a while. It has now begun. Uh, I noted that some of the U.S. tanks that have been supplied are part of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Where do things stand right now early on in the counteroffensive? And how optimistic are you that the Ukrainian army is going to be able to dislodge uh, Russia from some of the regions that they've captured? Well, I'm honestly optimistic that they're going to recover some territory. I'm not so sure I'm overly optimistic that it's going to be decisive, that this is going to be the end of the war. I kind of doubt that will be the case. And you're right. We have seen some of the Western uh, military material used, Leopard tanks. We've seen some Bradley fighting vehicles being involved. But it appears what the Ukrainians are doing is calling, conducting a multi-pronged offensive operation uh, in the straight south in Zaporizhia, in the Donbass region, and farther north up around Bakhmut. It seems that they have made some modest gains in some particular areas, but it has not been a decisive breakthrough. They may be actually conducting what we would call probing attacks this time to try to define which one of these main avenues approach seems to be the one offering the greatest success and then concentrating military power there. But they're clearly using some of the nine brigades that we trained and outfitted for this military uh, effort. And they've got to breach really very, very severe Russian defenses because Russians basically have had since November, this line has been pretty doggone static except around Bakhmut. And as a consequence, of course, the Russians have intensified the defenses with minefields, trench lines, uh, anti-tank traps, all that kind of stuff, which have got to be breached if, in fact, this offensive is going to have significant success. 
Yeah, now we've seen the drone strikes on behalf of the Soviets uh, droning and, and bombing various cities throughout Ukraine. But in, in a real sense, this is a kind of a throwback war, if you will, right? I mean, they're, they're fighting essentially a 20th century war here. Oh, with no doubt about it. In some ways, this looks like World War One. I. I mean, there's two ways you can attack a, a fortified position. One is you can just pound the living heck out of it with artillery uh, and then try to move your armored forces forward, hoping that by doing that initially you have you know, killed off a lot of the defenders, deafened them, or at least they've pulled back into bunkers and are hiding, which allows then your infantry to move across open areas fairly quickly. The second way is to do it more by surprise or maneuver. Think back to the Gulf War. I commanded the battalion in the Gulf War. We attacked the Iraqi uh, fortified positions. But we did it by doing a big hook with the 7th Corps and maneuvering basically around a lot of those defenses instead of going right directly into the teeth of those defenses. Yeah, that's fascinating. There's been pretty much basic unanimity on behalf of the United States when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Uh, both parties have, have been supportive of it. There have been some voices in the Republican Party that have questioned that support. And I wanted to get your reaction to something one of the candidates for president Vivek Ramaswamy, who was on uh, this week on ABC on Sunday, uh, articulated uh, an argument why we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. And I don't agree with that sentiment, but I found it interesting. Here's what Ramaswamy had to say. I don't trust Putin, but I do trust Putin to follow his self-interest. I don't think he enjoys being the little brother in the relationship with Xi Jinping. And so what I think we need to do is end the Ukraine war on peaceful terms that, yes, do make some major concessions to Russia, including freezing the current lines of control in a Korean War-style armistice agreement. Ukraine really wouldn't want to do. Which Ukraine wouldn't want to do, and also a permanent commitment not to allow Ukraine to enter NATO. But in return, Russia has to leave its treaty and its joint military agreement with China. That better advances American interests and actually further deters China from going after Taiwan, which I think is a much higher priority for the United but, but, States. Let me ask so what, what's your re reaction to hearing that argument, Colonel McCausland? My first reaction is he needs to hire a foreign policy advisor because he doesn't know very much about foreign policy. That would be my first recommendation. Yeah. First of all, there's not a formal treaty alliance that I know of between the Russians and the Chinese in terms of security. There's, there's multiple agreements with economics. There's talk about them, great friendship. But there's no formalized alliance like you have in the case of NATO, number one. Number two, how in the world could any Democratic leader say morally, well, we're going to give the Russians this territory and reward them for an aggressive war that's killed over 10,000 civilians, resulted in 12 million refugees, and has continued to rain down uh, war on innocent cities, blow dams, and the like. And how can we furthermore think that Vladimir Putin would be deterred from wider efforts in Europe beyond what he's already taken if we reward him for this particular conflict. And furthermore, how can we possibly believe that by rewarding Mr. Putin for this particular aggressive action, that, that would send a clear message to Xi Jinping mm. that he should not conduct aggressive actions against Taiwan? Now, if that candidate can answer all those questions, then I might agree with him. <laughs> well, it seems to me that uh, if not, uh, if Vladimir Putin's going to give up this fight, he's got to face some resistance from within. And obviously, media attention that comes out of Russia is limited. We do know there's a resistance that's helping the Ukrainians in the South uh, fight back at Russia. Is there any intelligence that's starting to show that the people of Russia are souring on this war and starting to speak out about it? And do you believe that's going to have to be a role in bringing an end to this? There is some evidence, and yes, I do over time. I think that will maybe what turns the tide. 
there is some intelligence that's come out that some of the Russian elites, even around Putin, are becoming more and more uh, disquiet about this particular war, realizing that in reality, uh, Mr. Putin can't win this war in the way that he had wanted to win it, which was take over Ukraine entirely. Uh, and he stands really to lose it, and Russia may lose it more broadly. I mean, think about it for a minute. Uh, you're an extraction economy long term. You have a declining population. It's going to drop from 140 million people now to about 125 million by, t- by 2050. And one thing have you done as an extraction economy is you have convinced all of your customers pretty much that you're not reliable. And so we've seen a dramatic deweaning of Western Europe uh, from purchasing oil and natural gas from the Russians. Even the Germans aren't stupid enough to buy natural gas from the Russians, even if the war ended today. So where does that put you in terms of long-term economics? Where does it put you in terms of foreign investment when 100 corporations or more have left Russia in terms of foreign investment that you need to recapitalize that energy? energy? Yes, you can sell oil and natural gas to the Chinese, and yes, they'll buy it from you at discounted prices, oh, by the way. But the Chinese are also diversifying their energy imports from the Middle East and elsewhere. So where have you left your people and your economy and your country longer term by this war? So those populations, those leaders, I'm sorry, are becoming more and more disquiet. And the average Russian, I think, is showing more disquiet as the economic situation starts to change in Russia and as the body bags continue to come home. That analysis. Russians killed or wounded. That it, that analysis is precisely why we love having Colonel Jeff McCausland on the program with us. He's the author of Battle Tested: Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders. It is a great book. I have read it. I recommend it highly. Colonel McCausland, have a great weekend. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little infrastructure in St. Louis. That's next on KMOX. Hi, I'm Paul Goldschmidt. Hi, I'm Miles Michaelis. I'm Adam Wainwright, and you're listening to the Voice of the Cardinals, KMOX. It's the Cards and Reds tonight. Amron Total Access 620. First pitch 715. KMOX is Cardinals Radio. And welcome back to the Hancock and Kelly Show on a Friday. We're going to take you all the way to the top of the hour. Then we join the show. And, John, we've got some breaking news coming out of Jefferson City. Yes, yeah, very news. sad. Very sad news. Sad news. Uh, former. State Senator Ron Richard, who was from Joplin, he was the Senate president. He was also Speaker of the House. He's the only Missourian in history to hold both of those posts in the General Assembly. Has passed away at the age of 75 um, at his home in Joplin. Uh, I don't have any additional details. I just learned of this. I I knew Ron Richard. We interviewed Ron Richard uh, here on KMOX when he was Senate president. He was a uh, colorful (laughs) guy. but he was fiercely loyal, and he was a very good leader. Uh, had a bit of a gruff exterior, but when you got to know him, he was one of the kindest, sweetest human beings I'd ever worked with in politics. And he was very effective. He was he was a guy that he spent a good deal of time in St. Louis working with the business community. He was yeah. known for his very strong pro-business um, bent in, in his political demeanor. And it's a it's a real loss, and I'm I'm just I'm saddened. Yeah, respected by both sides of the aisle. Very of much. course, his policy was not necessarily in line with the Democrats, but people respected him. Uh, he got a lot of attention during the Eric Greitens uh, fiasco that the state went through, and kind of was a steadying force inside a very divided Republican Party. Yeah, I think that's accurate, and um, you know, I intend to find out. You know what the I had not heard that he had been ill, and you know, Ron was a friend of mine when I. When I ran for Secretary of State a hundred years ago, uh, he owned a, a couple of bowling centers down there in Joplin, 
and hosted fundraisers for me. And so I, I go back uh, 30 years or plus with Ron Richard, uh, just a really great guy. He was the mayor of Joplin before he was in the General Assembly. He served uh, in the State House, rising to Speaker of the House. He served in the State Senate, rising to President of the Senate. As I said, the only Missourian in history to hold both of those posts. Uh, truly exceptional guy, and uh, I'm going to miss him. Yeah, condolences to his family, to uh, the state of Missouri, and it's a sad day, and uh, more information to follow. Keep it tuned to KMOX, and uh, you'll continue to hear more about that. John, I had the unique experience of having a friend of mine in from out of town. Yeah. Uh, Mark is in from Dallas. You may remember Mark came in and went to the Dallas uh, Blues, Blues game during the uh, Stanley Cup run. When yes. we went in the triple overtime and won. And, uh, that, uh, you were at that game? That particular game. The Patty Maroon goal. Yeah, the Pat Maroon goal. And if you remember, Ben Bishop stood on his head oh. that night, stopped like 60 shots. Yes, yeah, tremendous game. Should have been the uh, most valuable player. Whose even parents, though. by the way, own Bishop's Post out in West County. Great food, great yeah. people. But uh, Mark was in town and uh, came in for the Grateful Dead concert, and we've been spending a little bit of day- time being tourists in our own town. So went to the concert yeah. yesterday, yeah. Uh, went over to the east side to do some golfing oh. over at um, uh, Gateway National. Yeah. And then, of course, last night spent some time at Charlie Gito's on the Hill. And it's always fun to see St. Louis through outsiders' eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I live in the Central West End, and Mark had so much to say. He could not believe the amount of construction and investment around the hospitals in St. Louis. Yeah, right. And we had gone out uh, by the the BJC complex, yeah. which is obviously exploding in growth. And then as we moved out towards MOBAP and, and Mercy, he saw that and he was like, wow, this is really a healthcare, uh, you know, driven area. Uh, had some great things to say about that. Like I said, we spent some time on the east side. He was like a teenage girl snapping photos of of the arch and how pretty the city is. Wow. And had That's such good great hear. things to say that about really our, our neighborhoods hear. and stuff. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, we were driving back home uh, last night from um, the hill, and uh, Mark in the back of the car just quietly asked me, he says, hey, let me ask you a question. Is there any push for a bond issue to deal with the roads in the city of St. Louis? And mm. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, these roads are terrible, man. I've never seen roads like this. And he goes, so much seems to be going right here. Yet you've got roads that, uh, I mean, you know, we were in a fairly nice car that we were getting bounced bounced around like nobody's business. And it was interesting to get that perspective of, one, a person from the outside just saying, wow, St. Louis has got so much going on. He doesn't know about our own zits and flaws. Right. And at the same time, being able to come out of the middle of nowhere and comment on, wow, your infrastructure is crumbling and are you all doing anything? You know, that's really interesting because, you know, I drive on these streets all the time. And, it I mean, I guess they're bad, you know. I mean, they just come to accept them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know where... Uh, coming to KMOX, I know now where all the potholes are. Right. And there's, well, there's, so there's two kinds of potholes. There's the potholes you have to drive around. <laughs> right. And then there's the potholes that you have to line up perfectly in the middle of the car so that you avoid it with the tires on both sides. Right. Those are the two kinds of potholes. And I've identified all of those now. And 
by and large, I managed to miss them. But they're, they are everywhere. Well, and he's coming from Dallas, a rather new city, if you will. I mean, Dallas started to explode in the 60s and 70s. Right. And then, of course, you know, it's become one of the biggest cities Have you been to country. Dallas lately? Yeah, I've been down there hanging out with Mark. And, and, and it, the, the traffic is unbelievable yeah, in it, Dallas. And the roads, they, the, you know, they, but they're in good shape. But at the same time, we were going to restaurants. You know, Charlie Gito's is in a 100-year-old building. Some of my friends own 100-year-old homes. That's unheard of in Texas. Sure, right. So, uh, you know, and I was trying to explain to him, look, when you're a legacy city like St. Louis is, um, and at one time we were one of the biggest, most important cities in our country, you know, a lot of our infrastructure is from that time. And unfortunately, we've neglected it, whether it be our own water system. And we all know water in St. Louis is, is some of the best water in the country. Uh, we're getting ready to see a, a bond increase of 20% Say what? in one yeah. year on city water. They've got almost $500 million in just maintenance and upkeep that needs to take place on the existing water system we have in the city of St. Louis. And it's run by the city. That's run by the city. Not to mention the the, the replacement of some of that stuff Uh that's going to take place. So, John, you're looking at a city that has some significant investment that needs to take place. And and it it didn't go unnoticed from my friend who came from another city. And they're sitting on what? How much? A Half billion a billion dollars? I mean, yeah, between the Rams settlement money, uh, the money that they got from the Fed, federal government, uh, the largesse they got. And, you know, these are – St. Louis is a legacy city. The infrastructure is old. The streets are not in good shape. You mentioned the water system. They're going to raise the water rates on everybody. They, 20%, 40% in two years. They ought, to, they ought to privatize that water. I mean, that's just – but, you know. See, but th- I'm with you on this. I mean, obviously the city can't meet the capacity of needs that needs to be done with, whether it be paving the roads, sinking the lights, dealing with the infrastructure. And in the past, privatization, as you will remember from our conversation about um, the, the airport. airport, you know, it's as dirty a word on the Democratic side as regulation is yeah. on the Republican side. But the reality is, is that you can do privatization and protect all the things that that those voter, those particular politicians are interested in, which is making sure people are getting paid a fair wage and, and, and with working conditions by forcing those jobs to be prevailing wage and union. I think it would get things done quicker in the city and would help us turn it around. Like I said, we had a person here who was, you know— Wanting to be a cheerleader of St. Louis, but his final comment to me was, "What's going on with your roads?" I said, "Well, wait till you see our trash and policing." Yeah, well, and, <laughs> right. But you know, I don't know that the city spent the money that they're sitting on no, yet. They, they don't know what it. to do no. with it. But I'll tell you what, they're going to the, solve some other problems. Well, first. the big, the biggest mistake you, you can make with one-time money is to obligate yourself for future expenditures with that one-time money, and governments do it all the time. And what what ends up happening is that you burden overburden yourself with one time money making commitments that you can't cash down the road. But a good use of one time money is infrastructure because it's got to get fixed. It's cyclical in nature that they you know the stuff lasts for fifty, sixty, eighty, a hundred years, whatever it is, depends on the type of infrastructure. But that's the place to use one time money and actually fix this place up. A fight has been taking place inside the golf world for the better part of two years over who should control the major tours. This is not specific to just golf. This is the Saudis wanting to get involved in world sport. And this is playing out in real time. We have a potential merger that might take place. 
But it could have an impact on other sports, whether it be the NBA, soccer, potentially even America's pastime, baseball. We're going to get into that with our own golf expert, Dan Reardon, after this right here on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Local news and information direct to your smart speaker. Just say, play KMOX. And I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. And as it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? Wow, that was Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA, just about a year ago, really taking the gloves off with Liv, uh, essentially making this a moral argument as to whether or not you should be going to play golf with the Sardis and the Liv. Uh, well, he's done a 180. Uh, we all woke up uh, to the news that uh, Liv and the PGA are joining forces. The Saudis are now uh, owners of the PGA, and joining us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line is our own golf expert. He's none other than Dan Reardon. Quite a week in golf, and for that matter, international sport, Dan. Yeah, yeah, it is, Michael, but I, I, I'll take a little bit of an issue with the way you characterize this. As to how what that level of Saudi involvement will be with golf going forward, we don't know. But to characterize it as, as a merger of LIV and the PGA Tour, I think, is is, is not correct. I, I think what this is, is the Saudis have found another way to buy their way into the game. And in doing so, uh, we are seeing the end of the LIV tour. I don't think there will be LIV golf um, in 2024, despite what Greg Norman is saying. This, a merger is when two companies bring products together and unify them and market them together. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the PGA Tour and the DP Tour are looking for a financial partner set aside all those other ethical yep. concerns, moral concerns in order to get that money uh, in, involved in their operation. Well, the, the LIV tour has been a failure from the get-go. I said it was never going to last and would go, go away sooner rather than later. Yeah, uh, so let's get into that. First of all, this is something that people should be paying attention, not only from a golf perspective, but it's clear that the Saudis are trying to restructure uh, their economy going forward. They have their sights on uh, English football. They have their sights on American golf. I think they potentially could come to someday for the NBA. Heck, even maybe baseball. Uh, this is where they're choosing to invest their money. At the same time, though, uh, this became a moral argument. You saw Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, the two biggest stars in world golf, along with John Rahm, standing on the side of the PGA Tour saying, no, we're not going to be a part of this sports washing that was taking place with the Saudis at the same time, you had Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, and of course Phil Mickelson over on the live side who were taking the money. Uh, and then we get this announcement after this big moral argument that, uh, you know, they weren't going to have anything to do with these folks. And essentially leaves Rory McElroy sitting out there looking like a chump because he's been carrying the water uh, of this argument and gets blindsided by his own tour and Joey Monahan cutting out the argument that he had been using to fight live. And I don't disagree with you on the, the moral hypocrisy involved in this. Um, and I, I would characterize that as really bad PR in retrospect. But even worse PR is the notion that the Saudis, if they really thought they were going to enhance their reputation by going through this process, all they did is hang up a giant billboard 
that gave people an opportunity to say, look how bad these people are. We don't want any part of their money. So, so even from that standpoint, LIB has been a failure. But let me, let me quickly just define failure. Three weeks ago, after an embarrassing moment with their broadcast partner, CW, they offered a subscription service to watch the LIV tournament in Washington. When that tournament was over and Harold Warner III had his $4 million paycheck, the total number of subscribers they had was 19. Not 19 wow. million, 19,000. They had 19 subscribers. <laughs> they took in $57. And I'm telling you, if Steve Moore knew that there were 19 people listening to this show right now, your cars would be up and running outside the front uh, door. Yeah, I wouldn't have to pay the parking garage fee anymore. Uh, Dan Reardon is our guest, our golf analyst here at KMOX. Is it possible, Dan, that, that the Live Concept Tour was designed to produce exactly this result, that they never seriously anticipated a long-term rival golf entity. I, I do buy into that idea. When you say they have unlimited money and they can do whatever they want, if they lost a billion dollars here, but they buy into a partnership with the, the two tours and they have an opportunity to make money going forward, that billion dollars will seem inconsequential 10 years down the road. The question is how much control will they have over golf? Jay Monahan's position openly stated, and we know his credibility is now called into question, but he said the tour will run the tour. The DP tour, tour will run the DP tour. What we have now is an opportunity to still operate as a not-for-profit, but at the same time be a part of a company that is making profit. And I think that's what we're looking at. And if that was the idea from the get-go, then the Saudis uh, succeeded extremely well. But they did that over a lot of objections for people for good reasons, and they did that over what's going to turn out to be the bodies of a bunch of players who ran away from their tour to take the money and now have to find a way back. Yeah, it's really going to be interesting to see, uh, and I guess it's not clear at this point whether the live golfers are going to be welcomed back into the PGA. I would suspect so. Uh, there's going to be a lot of sour grapes there, a lot of bruised feelings there for the golfers who stayed and defended the PGA. When these live golfers, if they come back, are they going to just come back as if nothing ever happened? There will be consequences what they are. I don't know. But I will also say when Brooks Kepka made his run at the Masters, not, not so much at the PGA, he avoided this topic. But when he made his run at the Masters, I was in the room and Brooks talked about the fact that, yes, we are rivals, and we are in, in, in two dif different business operations, but we're actually neighbors in Florida, and we play golf together all the time. I think the, the uh, dissatisfaction with the players over the money will air out in public, but I think the personal relationships will not change at all, with a few exceptions. You know, there, there may be a Billy Horschel out there, somebody like that, who's going to have bruised feelings. Nobody's going to throw but, a party for Greg Harmon. That's the one thing we know. And with just a, under a minute left, the consequences of this for the PGA Tour and World Golf are not over with. The Department of Justice is still looking into uh, questions of antitrust. And now Congress is all fired up because this, Dan, I, I, this is a larger ploy by the Saudis to get involved in American sport and to shift the focus from North America to the rest of the world. That's what's always been interesting to me, that Donald Trump's been involved in this because it's supposed to be about making America great again. I don't know how that is when we're shifting the focus of world sport to the Middle East and the Far East. And this is very clearly going to be a monopoly, and quite honestly, the lawsuits that they decided to drop 
were all based on LIV accusing those two tours of being monopolistic in their operation. That will be an interesting case. I said to Mark Reardon earlier this week, wait until the politicians get involved in this deal. That's when the circus will begin. Well, nothing. there's nothing more fun than a circus, is there? Dan Reardon has been our guest. Thanks so much for your insight and expertise, sir. Have yourself a great weekend. I enjoyed it, gentlemen. All right, Dan Reardon, and uh, the world of the world of golf will continue somehow, Michael, and they will continue putting that little ball in that little hole from many, many yards away. Yes, there's no doubt about it. Hey, we're going to stick around for Amy Are and we? Chris, and you know they got the top three that comes at the top of the hour. I wonder what number one's going to be. It's hard to say hmm. what number one is, and uh, well, we'll f- sure we'll be talking about that some more right here on the Voice of St. Louis, Camel X.